Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Grounded with Pastor Matt Round. This week, we're back in the studio with Pastor Matt, and we're going to be tackling two subjects um, that kind of go hand in hand. Pastor Matt's going to tell us what is the gospel and salvation. Hello, Pastor Matt. Hey, Noah Greer. Uh, good to be back with you. And uh, so to answer what is the gospel and salvation, we have to understand that they're not the same, but there are certainly things about them that overlap. But uh, we'll work through the gospel. And in working through the gospel, which is really foundational, and I'm glad we're doing it in a fairly early episode, um, in working through the gospel, we will get to salvation and how those things are intertwined. So when we talk about the gospel, what is it? Well, gospel means good news, and it is good news, but uh, what exactly is the good news that we're talking about? Um, it's always kind of surprising. Uh, as a pastor, a lot of times in counseling sessions, I will ask what the gospel is. Um, knowing that it's so foundational to who we are as believers, uh, it's something we would expect, I think, that we would all have kind of the same understanding about. We would be able to talk about it in the same terms. We would all have a real clarity on it. But when you ask someone what the gospel is, a lot of times there's some hesitation, some uncertainty, uh, maybe some downright bad theology that comes out of that sometimes. Um, and I think it's because maybe we don't talk about it with the clarity that we always need to. So to start off with, I want to go over what the gospel is not. And uh, sometimes when I ask people what the gospel is, we'll say the gospel is the good news about Jesus. And that is true, uh, but it is an incomplete answer at best. Sometimes people will say, uh, well, the gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that is absolutely true. Those are the gospels as we have in our Bibles. And they certainly do contain the good news about Jesus Christ. And I would even say that they do contain what we would call the gospel itself. Uh, but even that answer doesn't really give us what we need to know or understand. Um, there are some things in our culture that have crept in and have kind of taken the place of what the gospel is. And sometimes when I ask, what is the gospel? People will answer something along the lines of, well, uh, that God loves you and that he has a wonderful plan for your life. And while there is some truth in parts of that statement, it is um, unclear and ultimately unhelpful. And I think the danger is that if we don't have clarity on the gospel, then we can't do what the church has been called to do, and that's make disciples through preaching the gospel. Uh, you can't call people to Christ if you don't know the gospel that you are preaching that ultimately calls people to Christ. So when we talk about the gospel, there are certain core elements that our gospel presentation has to include, and not a formal list, and this is the way that you say it. There are as many different um, clear and impactful gospel presentations as there are people who are faithful to evangelize the lost. But there are certain elements that not only theologically, but just logically need to take place, need to, need to be there so that the message makes sense. So when we talk about the gospel, where do we start? Uh, when we talk about the gospel, I think you need to start with God. Uh, without God, there's no foundation for the gospel. So when we talk about the gospel, we begin with the idea that there is a God and that he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Uh, this God is self-existent. He doesn't lack anything. He is perfect. He is complete. He does not require anything to be more than he is. He can't be added to. He can't be taken away from. Uh, that reality of a creator, sustainer, perfectly holy, set apart other than God is really the foundation of the entire gospel proclamation. 
because if there is a God and that God is the creator, then not only does everything owe its existence to him, but everything owes its allegiance and obedience to him. That God who formed the world also determined how that world ought to function. Uh, that God is able to set the standard for what is right and what is wrong. And so when God speaks to his creation and lays out the standard for that creation, he is not only able to do that, but he has the absolute authority to do that. And the standard that he sets is perfection. God, who created all things, says, be holy as I am holy. And not only do we need to know about God, but then we need to know about man. We need to understand something about you and I as human beings and our relationship to that God who made us. Because although God made all things, he formed the world and he filled the world. At the pinnacle of that creation is man and woman. He forms Adam out of the dust. He forms Eve out of the side of the man. And he says that mankind alone bears his image. We are not only physical beings, we are spiritual beings. We have life that lasts beyond the physical life. We are not only called to live and breathe, but we are called to reflect something about the one that made us. We've been given essentially the opportunity and the call to live in fellowship with that God who made us. Mankind was created to exist in a worshiping, fellowshipping relationship with that God who made him. And that's what you see in the garden, that Adam and Eve would walk with God in the garden, that there is no separation between them. There's fellowship, there's relationship, and that is good and very good. And that's what we were made for. But then once we understand God, and once we understand man, then we have to talk about sin, because sin breaks that design. Man and woman that were designed and made for intimate fellowship and relationship with God don't have that relationship now. What we see is a broken fellowship between God and man that he made. We look in the garden, we see that that standard of God was always the same. Be holy as I am holy, be sinless, be perfect. And as God places Adam and Eve in the garden, he gives them everything that they need. He puts them in the perfect environment and gives them everything they need to not only survive, but to thrive in relationship with him. And we know there's the one rule, don't eat from that tree. And we also know if we have any kind of exposure to the Sunday school stories or the flannel graphs or the veggie tales or whatever it might be, uh, the idea that Adam and Eve were deceived and they rebelled and they sinned. They did what God had expressly told them not to do. And when we talk about sin and we have to talk about sin, that's exactly what it is. Uh, sin is a violation of what God says is the standard. And that is every thought, it's every word, it's every action, it's every affection, it's everything that goes against that perfect standard of God. Everything that goes against what God says is good and right. And when we talk about sin, sin always has a cost associated with it. Uh, when God told them not to eat of that tree, he said, in the day that you do that, dying you will die or you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. And we know that that comes from Romans, but that doesn't start in the New Testament. The idea is that sin has always brought death. Sin kills and sin always kills. And not only does sin kill, but sin separates. The first words of God to Adam in the garden after he sinned were, where are you? And this God who formed all things and made all things wasn't ignorant about where one of his creatures was. He didn't know. He didn't he did not know where Adam was. He was highlighting the idea that where there had been fellowship, there was now separation. 
And sin separates and sin kills. And not only does sin bring physical death and physical separation, but sin brings eternal death, eternal separation from that God who made us. Rather than living in joyful, worshipful fellowship with him, uh, to die in our sin means that we face an eternity of God's judgment. And we have to understand that that's the right response, that if that God who we talked about in the very beginning is holy, if he is good and perfectly good, then he has to deal with what is not good. He would not be good if he allowed sin and injustice and violation of what is right and good and holy to go unpunished. And so sin brings death and the wages of sin is death. And that sin problem is universal. It wasn't just limited to time and a place to Adam and Eve in a garden somewhere long ago. And we know that through Adam, not only did all sin and not only are we all born into sin, but we're all actively sinners. Uh, We sin by nature and we sin by choice. And Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The idea that this is not a regional, a political, a cultural problem. It is a human problem. The universal problem of humanity is not poverty. It's not a lack of education. It's not an unfair distribution of resources. The universal problem of humanity is sin that separates us from the God who made us. And up to this point, the good news is not good news. It is simply the reality of what is. But if we don't get there, if we never get to that point in our gospel presentation, if we don't have that kind of clarity, then there's no point of a gospel presentation. Because if if there is no God, then I'm not accountable to anyone. If mankind is the pinnacle of all that there is, or if we are simply the result of time and chance and death and decay and mutation, then there is no accountability. And the highest calling of life is to live to the fullest, to reproduce another generation and to die and go back into whatever natural elements you came from. The gospel tells us that there's more. And in fact, eternity is set in human hearts. Every culture, every language, every time and every place has an understanding. It is built into us that there is more than this physical life. And now we understand why that longing is there. Now we understand, once we understand God and man and sin, why there is that built-in understanding that not only is death not the end, but that if nothing is done, death is a fearsome end. Not only an unknown, but an expectation of judgment after that. And it's only when we get there that we can begin to talk about what makes the gospel the good news, because now we begin to talk about Jesus Christ. Because mankind on its own, not only is sin a universal problem, sin is a universal problem that we have no solution to. Sin is not something that we can fix. There is nothing good that we can do to bridge that gap, nothing right that we can do to restore that broken relationship because sin is a continual part of who we are. And on our own, nothing brings us back to that standard of perfection. And so in our helplessness, God had to intervene on our behalf, and he intervened through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man. Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning with God and who was God, but who at the right and perfect time took on flesh and became like one of his creatures, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we talk about his life and Jesus Christ lived the life that we were called to, 
Uh, he knew what it was to be hungry, to be tired, to be tempted, to be tested, to be tried. Uh, but he did that without sin, without a single failure. Every thought, every word, every action was perfectly pleasing to God the Father. And yet at the end of that life, rather than the honor and the reward and the recognition that was due, rather than the worship that should have been due to him, he was nailed to a cross. And when we talk about the cross, we have to understand that Jesus Christ on that cross was not bearing the wrath of spiteful, jealous Jewish religious leaders. He was not bearing the wrath of an insecure Roman governor or uh, the desire of political officials to maintain peace and unity. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God, poured out against sin. What happened on the cross was a substitution. It was a sacrifice that satisfied the demands of God. That God who said, be holy as I am holy, couldn't change that standard or he would no longer be holy. And so there had to be a way for something to stand in our place. Otherwise, we all rightly suffer that wrath of God. But we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, uh, Paul writes that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That on the cross, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin, was treated as if he had borne all of our sin. And he did that on our behalf. And the wonderful thing about that is there's this divine exchange that takes place. That on the cross, he bears our sin. And in turn, he places his righteousness, his faithfulness, his holiness, his goodness on us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is this unfair, undeserved, unmerited, gracious exchange that God provides where the perfect stands in place of the fallen and the fallen places his perfect or the perfect places his perfection on his fallen people. And the gospel brings us not only to sin, but through the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's where we begin to talk about salvation. Salvation, what do I need to be saved from? I need to be saved from the wrath of God poured out against my sin. And that's the salvation that is offered through the gospel of Christ. Because that gospel doesn't end with Jesus Christ dying on the cross. It speaks then of his resurrection. That's a critical element of our gospel presentation. This, this Christ who died for us did not stay dead. Death had no hold on him, not only because he was God, very God, and could conquer death, but because he had done no wrong. His sacrifice was perfect. It was accepted. And three days after he was crucified, he was raised again to power and glory and honor and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where the author of Hebrews says he ever lives to make intercession for us. The idea that this gospel promises not just a hope, but a living hope. Uh, not just a faith in a dead Savior, but a faith in a living, resurrected Lord who currently is at the right hand of God, continuing to plead the case of his people, continuing to plead his goodness for us because we are still sinners, continually uh, being our advocate before the Father. And we know that that same Christ who was resurrected to power will return and will rule over his creation. And when we talk about the gospel, the gospel demands a response. That gospel that we preach demands a response from everyone who hears it. This gospel is something that is not only to be agreed with or understood, we are called to place our faith in it. To understand that Christ did what I could not. To understand that that God who was Lord over all creation, continues to be the Lord over his creation and has sovereign rule in my life, which calls me 
not only to faith in the first place, but to continual day-by-day obedience. That gospel promises not only that he was raised again in power, but that he's coming back in power. And so that gospel reminds me that I have an eternal hope, which gives me joy and peace and hope in whatever circumstance we happen to be facing. The gospel so often we think of as a one-time thing that happened in the past. And yes, I believed that. And now I've moved on beyond the gospel. The gospel is actually this powerful Uh, foundational aspect of our faith that we need to continually preach to ourselves because it continually convicts us of our sin, reminds us of our humility, reminds us of our desperate need for salvation, our only hope being found in God. And it reminds us of the great hope that we have as believers because that gospel speaks of a real sacrifice that actually deals with our sin once and for all. And so to interact with someone about the gospel and uh, to attempt to bring it down to a phrase that says that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is not only insufficient, it robs the gospel of its power. The gospel has to inform us about the God of the gospel. The gospel has to inform us about the sin that makes the gospel necessary. The gospel has to talk about the Christ who stood as a substitute for us. The gospel has to talk about his resurrection and the hope that there is because of that resurrection. And the gospel has to talk about a response. The gospel has to call me to respond, to place my faith in that Christ, to abandon any hope of reaching God or heaven or goodness on my own, to abandon any understanding that I am the rightful ruler of my own life and to surrender wholly all of this to him. So, uh, that is the long version of the gospel. And when I talk to people, I always say you should, you should work hard to have a gospel presentation that takes 30 minutes, that takes two minutes, and that takes as long as someone will listen to you for. So uh, that's, that's a basic foundational understanding of the gospel. And when we get that again, like I said, then you can see how salvation fits into that. Because what is salvation? It is God's gracious, merciful, sovereign act of rescuing sinners from a deserved eternal hell. Uh, Salvation is made possible by the gospel. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Um, Salvation is the day-by-day understanding that I am being made more like Christ, and salvation is the understanding that in the end, either when he comes to gather his people or when we see him in death, we will be made like him, stripped of that sin and that failure and perfected and made worthy and able to stand in his presence, not because of any good that we've done, but because we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Pastor Matt. That was amazing. If you enjoyed this episode, go take a listen to last week's episode. We answered the question, what does it mean to follow Christ? Um, Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. And we're going to be tackling the question, if God is good, And why do people go to hell? We'll see you then.